0: Turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 4. we a new series uh, on Revelation, strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. This is the Word of God. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who is to come, uh, was and who is to come, the Almighty. And join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we have that word this morning. We also have the sacrament we're asking, Father, that those two together uh, would give us a better understanding of, our, of all the good things we have in Christ, of all the benefits of belonging to Him, Father, of, of the reality, Father, of His glory. The glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, Father, open our eyes. By Your Spirit, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's 69 AD and the Roman general Vespasian has now become the Roman emperor. The trouble is he's in in Palestine. He's got to make his way back to Rome. Uh, And so in the meantime, reigning instead is his 18-year-old son Domitian who gets a taste of the power that he will one day uh, fully enjoy. Sure enough, 12 years later, after the death of his father and his older brother, Domitian becomes the emperor at the age of 30. And he began to move power away from the Roman Senate and directly to himself as emperor. His lifestyle is quite immoral, but uh in his in public life, uh he hypocritically institutes legislation against the very practices that he carries on privately. And then he adds to his title a claim to deity, calling himself Lord and God. And he expects others to do the same. Though Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, is a long way from Rome to receive Domitian's favor, they appease Domitian's ego by making life difficult for those who are unwilling to offer an annual sacrifice to the emperor. Uh, since most people in that day were polytheists, it didn't really matter to them when others sacrificed what was the deal. But if you were a Christian, you believed that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and God. Such emperor worship was not an option. Persecution follows as Christians refuse to take an oath of divine loyalty to the emperor. And it's in that setting that John writes to these churches in Asia to give them strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Richard Valkham adds, John sees that the nature of Roman power is such that if Christians are faithful witnesses to God, they must suffer the inevitable clash between Rome's divine pretensions and their witness to the true God. And as we face a world that's increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, we're headed towards that same inevitable clash. And our questions are the same. How can we be strengthened? How can we have hope for tomorrow? And so in his greeting, John uses as a starting point the glory of Christ you got to remember, John writes as an eyewitness years before, 60 years before perhaps, he'd been an eyewitness of Jesus' glory when he walked on earth. So he wrote in John 1, plainly, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John's going to be describing for us the glory of Jesus Christ. as As he saw Jesus... Uh, on earth and then as Jesus reveals to him scenes about the future and scenes from heaven scenes that John will grope for words to describe so as John begins his letter he's summarizing Jesus Jesus triumph in his earthly ministry that reflects his eternal glory along with our certain hope of his triumphal return and he does so as he writes to these seven churches We suggested last week the number seven suggests completeness, so he's right into the complete church of Christ in every age. So this is the first of 49 times you'll see the number seven uh, in Revelation. So we have more to say about that number later on as well as about these churches as we get on down the road. The point today would be this. As John writes, there are seven real churches in real places made up of real people who are facing real persecution. Uh, And John wants to give them strength and hope. And so he does it with this greeting that's really, it's breathtaking in its scope. So to see it, let's, let's go to the text. First, the greeting itself. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. The Apostle Paul made grace and peace normative for Christian communication. And really, the only way that you and I can talk about a holy triune God is God's grace. God's gift what we do not deserve because of our sin. Grace is God's gift of salvation to His people. Grace will be needed to help believers persevere as persecution looms. And then you have peace, meaning overall well-being. And that starts with this new grace-based relationship with God. William Hendrickson describes it this way. Peace is the reflection of the smile of God in the heart of the believer who's been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ as a result of grace. And so God's gift of grace... God's gift of peace assures us we have a right standing with God. And it assures us that we have God's blessing on our lives. And it's a reminder that the grace and peace, it says, comes from Him. It comes from God Himself. What we're going to get in Revelation is, a, is a, a, a God's perspective on the past, on the present, on the future. God's going to be showing us as we look all around us that He's got this history's not out of his hand. It's not of his control. And so to affirm God's greatness that reality John gives us a, a glimpse of the trinity. He starts with God the Father who is and who was and who is to come. Now recall last week we said when we're studying revelation the old testament is the key to understanding it. And certainly here, what John's referring back to is the verse in Exodus three fourteen, when God said to Moses, "I am that I am," the self-existent one. And the point is this: God is God; He always has been; He is now; He always will be. Uh, the eternality of God is emphasized. He's not bound by time; He's not bound by space. He simply is God. God the Father has always been and always will be. And so, as a spirit, it says we have the seven spirits who are before the throne. Again, remember, seven means complete. So, this complete the seven spirits, that's the Holy Spirit is referring to. Again, we go back to the Old Testament. We go back to Zechariah 4, and there are seven eyes there, and the spirit mentioned there. Uh, and that's where we find the promise that the Holy Spirit's going to be at work. He's going to be helping the people rebuild the temple after the exile. They've come back from Babylon, and he's helping them rebuild the temple. And today, the same Holy Spirit is still building the temple. But now it's not a building someplace, but it's the church. It's the people of God he's at work in. And finally, he gives us a threefold description of Jesus. He calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead... And the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, where does he go to in the Old Testament for that? Well, it's right out of Psalm eighty-nine. Uh, Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven says this: "And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." And then verse thirty-seven: "Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies." And so when we say Jesus is a faithful witness, what it means is he's a faithful witness to show us what God the Father is like. He that seen me has seen the Father. As George Ladd writes, he's the one who is born a faithful witness to God's redemptive purpose and to his work by what he did on the cross. And he calls him the firstborn from the dead. It has nothing to do with chronology, but rather his sovereignty and rank. He's supreme over all creation. Remember that Paul uses the same phrase. Jesus' resurrection makes him the firstborn from the dead. And it's the pivotal event in all of history to declare his victory over sin and death at the cross. And then he's the king of the ruler of the kings of the earth. Despite Roman emperors demanding worship, Jesus is ruler over all the kings, as the psalmist predicted. You live in a day when, for some reason, celebrities and politicians are revered, and the media seems to hang on every word they make in a pronouncement about all the issues of our day. Don't know why. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, But please know, they're not the powers that be. They all must bow down to King Jesus. To say to Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi... To Boris Johnson and to President Biden, all due respect, they are nothing before him. Jesus is the King of Kings. and Keep in mind, John has the courage to write this as he's a political prisoner of the Roman emperor. But he's not afraid to make the pronouncement. Take that, Caesar. what What a magnificent triune God that John's pointing to here. And it evokes from John this marvelous doxology. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's an astonishing doxology. We could stop uh, and, and spend hours on each statement that John makes there. Uh, First, to him who loves us. Stop right there. Loves us. You know, as children, very often we learn to sing what? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And that children's song encapsulates the most amazing the most stupendous, the most mysterious truth of all, the most wonderful, the most radical, the most gracious truth of all. Jesus loves me. You know, as children, we embrace that. But it's not really until we get older that we get a handle on just how amazing that is. Jesus loves a rebellious, sinful, self-centered worm like me and like you, all right? Just contemplate that. So does the Father. So does the Spirit. And we know he, He loves us so much that He's willing to die in our place. And notice the verb tense, He loves us. It's continuous, it's rooted in eternity past, and it never ends. Jeremiah 31 tells us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Romans 8, this, nothing can separate us from it, nothing. I'm, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing will ever make God love us less. Nothing will ever make God love us more. And we see evidence of that and the power of that love when John says he's freed us from our sins by his blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Perhaps some of you remember a woman we often encountered in Croatia years ago. Her name was Purina. She was a very prominent woman there. She was very involved in Jimmy Carter's friendship force that initiates, uh, promotes global friendships. She came each year to, to improve her English She politely would listen to our presentations of the gospel, but she always had an objection. And what she said was that our faith was simply too bloody. Too bloody. And she was, well, she was partially right. Ours is a bloody faith. The blood of thousands and thousands and thousands of thousands of bulls and goats and sheep was poured out over the centuries as a means to learn about the cost of the forgiveness of sins. I'll point to the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus shedding his blood on the cross for sinners like us that this table points to today. Jesus will soon enough in Revelation point, John rather, will soon enough in Revelation point to the reality that Jesus is the lamb who's been slain for us. He's our Passover lamb who paid the penalty for our sins with his blood. And notice we've been set free by the blood. Sin holds us captive. Sin has power over us. But we're set free by blood that's more powerful than our sins. Guilt can no longer hold us. Satan can no longer accuse us. Satan cannot hold us captive. The blood of Jesus sets us free. Amazingly, of all its sacrifice, the Son of God given for me, my debt He paid, and my death He died, that I might live. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you or evil, a victory win? There's power in the blood. The wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb just says, I am without one plea, but that that blood was shed for me. And there's more. He's made us a kingdom. He's made us priest to his God and Father. Again, that's rooted in the Old Testament. God intended for Israel to be a nation of priests. We see that back in Exodus 19. But it just didn't happen. Sin kept the people from realizing what God intended but now Jesus has accomplished for them what Israel could not, what we could not on our own. Through his death, he's made him a kingdom of priests who serve God as God and Father forever. And so as priests, we now have access uh, to God's presence by the finished work of Christ. As a kingdom, we live out kingdom principles in a very ungodly, rebellious world. We are a people who proclaim the excellences of him, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's our worship and our witness as priest. And then that immediately spawns John's own worship of Jesus, and it directs our worship. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I love how Phil Newton paraphrases it, paraphrases it and I sort of paraphrase it, uh, Perhaps our lack of spontaneous devotion is due to so little consideration of the wonder and greatness of God. John aims through this long letter to stretch our thinking about the triune God. The best antidote to the seeping despondency of the world among God's people is for us to think long and clearly upon Him. Then we shall always have reason to praise. See, whenever we find ourselves discouraged, whenever we feel defeated, beaten down, when we've had that terrible, no good, very bad day, when worries and anxieties have caused a long, dark night of the soul, when we've been let down by our closest friend, or we've lost our best friend, what he's saying is turn our eyes to Jesus. Seek to grasp His glory and His dominion. Contemplate His love, His power, His blood shed for us. Contemplate His his greatness and His glory, His eternity. Contemplate that when we've been there 10,000 years, what? We've just begun. Because John has good news. Look at the pronouncement. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Again, the roots for that are found in the Old Testament. It's in Daniel 7 that we find Jesus uh, coming in the clouds. We've had that expectation since Acts 1. The triumphant king of kings is returning when his triumph at the cross finally works itself out completely in history. And friends, nobody's going to miss it. Nobody alive will miss it. It's not a secret event. When Jesus departed the earth, only a few, relatively speaking, witnessed it. But now he says, every eye will see him return. And again, notice this present tense. It's coming. He's coming now. It started. And here's the thing. For us, it's going to be a wonderful day. You know, it's incredibly wonderful the day we've, we've longed for, the day we've anticipated. But for others will not be such a glorious day. Those who pierced him, he's talking about those who uh, did not believe in him. And they will indeed wail in fear and sorrow the fact that they face such a sober reality that all John can say there is, even so. Amen. You see, when Jesus returns, it will not be possible to repent. That opportunity for that will be gone. And anyone who rejected Jesus will be rejected by Jesus. For us, that's really a, a, a need, to a clearing call to evangelism and missions. That anybody would spend eternity in hell should break our hearts. That anybody would miss out on the love of Jesus. And then Jesus makes a statement that calls for everybody's attention. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this is an amazing statement for Jesus to make, to be sure. In fact, it's so amazing that some people, uh, scholars suggest that God the Father is the speaker here. But I believe if you follow the flow of the chapter, particularly what we hope we will see next week, this is Jesus identifying himself with his Father. This is Jesus making clear claim to his divinity, that he is God Almighty. He's the ruler of all history. And everything is under authority, just as God the Father said it would be. Back in Psalm 2 and Psalm 89. And so what about us? Ukraine, China, political division, looting of stores, rampant inflation, rampant crime, empty shelves, COVID, persecuted Christians. Friends, we need to lift our eyes to the glory of Christ. We need to contemplate His wonder and majesty. We need to celebrate His victory through the cross and the resurrection that offers to all who believe in Him the gift of eternal life. We need to tell a world that's constantly clamoring for more, that's constantly seeking to try to live in some virtual reality rather than the real world, that Christ is enough, that Christ is quite enough. And the meal set before us makes that truth known. It's God's love for us on full display. We see the depth of that love. We see the breadth of that love. That God's freed us from our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. That He is the faithful witness of what God is like. And that by virtue of His resurrection, He's the firstborn over all creation. And He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. About 16 years after assuming the throne of the Roman Empire, His own wife and several generals arranged for... Domitian's assassination. So much for being Lord and God. His opposition to the gospel was like the morning mist that quickly disappears each day. Vladimir Putin may seem like a great threat to world peace. Opposition to the church may continue to grow in our own culture. John's going to show us a lot of future conflict. But rest assured, rest assured, God wins. The Lamb of God triumphs, the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners such as us. And again, that's set before us this table, a table the Lord Himself invites us to this morning. uh, To take a meal, a meal of His body and blood. A meal that strengthens us in our walk with Him. A meal that gives us hope for tomorrow we invite all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and members of good standing of an evangelical church to come to this table. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Christ, we're so glad you're here and you're hearing God's truth. But the Bible would urge you not to partake in the bread and the cup. There's some guidelines there in in your worship guide uh, this morning. And we urge you to read God's word, pray for the Spirit of God to show you Jesus. Children, not yet been examined by the session, should not partake. But if you're desiring to, please let me know. Believers, we're called to examine ourselves to see if we recognize the body of Christ. That's talking about our attitude towards sin, given the cost that Jesus paid, his blood. And so if we think our sin's not a big deal, then we should not partake. Because we don't, we don't appreciate, we don't grasp, we don't recognize what Jesus has done. On the other hand, if we do think our sin's a big deal and we're struggling with it and we want strength for the battle, then by all means, we come and we eat and we drink. Let's each now take a moment to, on our own, confess our sins before a holy God. Father, we confess that we fall fall short of your glory. We ask your forgiveness. And Father, your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that Father, you cast our sins into the depth of the sea. And Father, they're gone. They're gone forever. So, Father, assure us of that now as we come to this table, we pray. and Strengthen us, we ask, through these elements, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.